Welcome once again to This Week in the Ancient Near East, the podcast that takes archaeology exactly as seriously as it deserves. I'm Alex Jaffe, director of the Bob and Ray Institute of Archaeology at the University of Southern North Dakota at Hoopel. Looking around, I appear to be joined, as usual, by two real academics from actual institutions, Professor J.P. Dessel of the University of Tennessee and Professor Rachel Hallett of the State University of New York at Purchase. We're coming to you from the Harkonnen Institute for the Study of Spice Trade here on the beautiful Hubble campus. This week we're back in Jerusalem looking at the recent decipherment of an inscription in a South Arabian language, Sabaean, found on an Iron Age pot in the city of David. Moreover, the deciphered word, labdanum, refers to a spice resin. Does this mean there was a spice trade that connected the kingdom of Judah with the Sabaean kingdom in what is now Yemen? Didn't we know that already? And what does it say about all the other kingdoms of Iron Age Arabia? Moreover, does it give some historical background to the biblical story of Solomon and Sheba? Or does it just mean that one South Arabian spice trader, Jamok, stuck in Jerusalem, scribbled a word on a pot? Anyway, the good news is that in Iron Age Jerusalem, you could get any sort of exotic material, but that still doesn't make you and your kingdom a big deal. Or does it? Uh, okay, so does anybody else have a lightning round? <laughs> let's let's hear yours first. Okay. Um, trying to make it uh, apropos, as usual. Um What's your favorite uh, favorite perfume smell? Hmm. In lieu of that, uh, or just favorite smell. I was going to say. You know, I don't I don't know that either of you you know know your Chanel number no. five from your Chanel number no. six, but uh, <laughs> well, you well, know, I there's... was going to answer with a with a perfume answer. Um, okay, well, no, that's allowed. I was going to say Eau de Paris, um, which. I don't know if they it? still make it, but it was a big deal back <laughs> back in the day. In junior high school, fifty years ago. No, um, it was it was something my mother had that I always liked, and I could never huh? find it as an adult. Ah, well, that's seeing that's the, the whole association, right? Thing. Smells bring out associations, right? So, right. Yeah. Warm warm chocolate chip cookies on a on a summer day, kind of thing. Right. All of my aunts in a cloud of Shalimar. <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> <laughs> oh, that got a laugh from everybody. Everyone knew exactly what I was talking about. Yeah, <laughs> it's you know, it's also specific to a, a place and it's yeah, a specific gender, class, and race, and and everything. That's right. Where <laughs> things is very cutting edge somehow. <laughs> um, I, or I could have said Old Spice. <laughs> old Spice, sure. <laughs> Right. High karate. High karate. Yes. <laughs> I'll never forget when when my son started using axe. Axe, I was about to say. And he came to the he came out of his room once and all all three of us went, whoa, what is that? <laughs> I think what? they taught about axe in middle school um hygiene classes. Um I yeah, because they all used it. Right. <laughs> And they would all buy it on their own because they knew we would never buy it for them. Right. What about, how do you guys feel about the smell of cow manure? I kind of like it. There you go. Yeah. 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 Um, Alex? I can take it or leave it. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, again, it, it produces, it produces uh, images and memories it's not something I, I necessarily would care to dab behind each year <laughs> <laughs> as opposed to other things. Unlike high karate, I'm not going to dash it on my cheeks. <laughs> but uh, Well, what's your favorite smell or perfume? Limes. 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 
That would be a good perfume, actually. It would be. And it's not just because I just put up uh, 1.75 liters of lime cello. <laughs> <laughs> after after uh, peeling laboriously, you know, like two dozen little limes for the peels. Oh. So I'm, you know, I'm sort of suffused with it. Right. Um, no, Martin is a good smell, though. It is a good smell. Yeah. My my goal at one point in life was to be a a lime farmer on the island of um, Minorca, oh, which was oddly that. specific. Yeah, it is oddly specific. And yeah. going for the smaller of the two orcas. <laughs> yeah, I want to be away from the tourists. Uh -huh. right. But. Uh, but what is uh what is a uh, a laudanum smell like? Does anybody know? It smells like beautiful death. <laughs> or, or is that laudanum? <laughs> That's laudanum. Yeah, well, that was the Sorry. first thing we need to do. We should probably emphasize to the to the listener that laudanum and laudanum are two different things. Very or we might be onto something. Yeah. <laughs> we might be onto some weird cognate. That's, uh, yeah. That's right. <laughs> some eight, some some Sabaic Latin cognate that was never never understood. Right. Yeah. So to continue the clarification, we will be talking a little bit about Latin <laughs> the resin as opposed to laudanum, the drug derived from the poppy. Yeah, There's from the Cystus uh, laudanifer shrub. Um, right. which, and I, I, I've never smelled it, but I looked it up and, and it said, and which is why I don't really trust things or people. It, it's been described as smelling fruity, sweet, woody, leathery, and musky. So it smells like basically, <laughs> smells like basically everything. Right. Or anything, exactly. Or ambergris. Oh, <laughs> Hey. Never, never having stuck my my head into a into the belly of a whale, I couldn't really say. But uh, well, that's... well, what's the word doing in Jerusalem in the 10th century? That's the question du jour. That is the question du jour. So, should we set it up a little bit more properly? Properly. Properly. Why? Why start now? Sure. All right. So there's this inscription. That was actually excavated back in 2012, and apparently it had been given, giving people trouble deciphering it. It's a troublesome inscription. A troublesome inscription. All it needed was some discipline. Yes. <laughs> and uh, the current suggestion that is hitting all the newspaper headlines is um, that it's actually not a Canaanite inscription, but it is a inscription in a um south arabian language and um that's what is getting people all excited because it would be a connection potential 10th century connection between israel in the time of solomon and sheba as in the queen of <laughs> that was that's what was on her business cards or her linkedin profile no right queen so, of so that's what's been making the headlines. Ooh, Solomon and the Queen of Sheba, and here's proof. Um, right. But the, the inscription is locally made. Oh, we should say what it says. I, I thought I, I thought I said that. Well, you didn't say. You, you, I, I think it should be clear by this point oh, to our listeners that, that the, the main word that uh, is on the inscription is latinum, this resin that comes from the Saudi Arabia area. And and it's been interpreted as suggesting that a an ancient South Arabian speaker was in Jerusalem and incised this little word into uh the onto the neck or the, the shoulder or something uh, of a pot. Right. And that this uh, and it was found in City of David, and it suggests that. There's connections between these two very, very far-flung places. And we're not, not far-flung enough so that there isn't a biblical reference to their connection. Right. right. <laughs> um, and I think maybe right now, let's just get ahead of this thing. Um, <laughs> we want to get ahead of the story. <laughs> I want to get ahead of the story. Uh, that apparently not all epigraphers agree that it's not Canaanite. 
that it could be Canaanite and it could still refer to the same resin. Um, so, so the, the, the fact, you know, don't the, get on our cases. What? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Don't get on our cases. We're not the ones saying this. Right. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So, so I just wanted to throw that out there right away. Well, there's a couple of, there's a lot of issues here about this whole, the, about this whole thing. And I don't even know where to begin, which is nothing new. So just get in the middle. Okay. That's apropos. <laughs> start, start in the middle and get nowhere. Right. So one of the things is that the epigraphers, that there's not any real consensus and that the most recent analysis of this being a Sabian or Sabaic or ancient South Arabian language is the first real published suggestion of this inscription as being of that uh, origin. And part of the reason why is because the find, I think it was found in 2012 and a bunch of, you know, Northwest Semitic specialists looked at it and tried to uh, understand it as a Canaanite inscription. And they couldn't come up with anything plausible or anything realistic or anything that made any sense. And so it sort of disappeared from the, you know, scholarly discussion because it was just a string of, you know, theoretically Canaanite letters that didn't really mean anything. Right. Or really be, you know, productively translated or even sort of fixed in any right. kind of sequence. And then, and then we have this recent publication that said the reason that is is because it's not in Canaanite. It's in uh, ancient South Arabian. And in ancient South Arabian, we get the following translation of at least one of the words, possibly the number five, which corresponds to the capacity of the jar, right? The jar is 30, uh, holds 30 gallons or five ifa. And uh, that's where I wanted to start. Okay. And we have these two points of view and the capacity of the jar is 30 gallons. So let's start with a <laughs> with a volume of incense of 30 gallons. How realistic is that? Ah. Uh, oh, that's interesting. But it's not it it's not necessarily incense. It's right. It's much more reasonably um it that's the capacity of the jars 30 units, but the or quantity the quantity of the inf it's an infusion. Right. It's and, the raw material. It's one of the one of the four components. Right, and apparently, uh, what, what did what, what did I read? Uh, you know, it, this material, um, uh, which is you know somehow squozen or flayed out of the bushes, uh, is is a then reduced to a kind of a black paste of some kind, and then often used for flavoring wines and yeah. um, like honey wine or something. So, so yeah, maybe this is just the capacity of the vessel, which is then flavored with this, this exotic um, material. So you're and saying that it's uh 30, 30, what 30, it's 30 gallons or five, E5. but the five is an important part of the argument as I understand it, because it indicates that the it indicates that the inscription, which was written on the vessel prior to firing, yeah. and the and the vessels made out of local materials, we're told that we're not given any any um, any actual specific data on that, but we're told in the in the scholarly article that it's locally produced in Jerusalem, yeah, and that the five is part of the. Inscription meaning that it suggests that there are five ifa of this product. Mm -hmm. And my question is, and this is open because we don't know a lot about any of this, is that we always have always thought and have always sort of been told that these kinds of things, incense, oils, unguents, are all precious commodities, prestige commodities that are usually transshipped in small containers. So in the late Bronze Age, right, stirrup jars coming from, you know, Mycenaean, variety of Mycenaean 
um, to stirrup jars are thought to contain these precious kinds of oils and unguents and perfumes. Small jars, small closed jars. And here we have a large store jar that's not exactly closed and would hold a huge capacity of this stuff. And theoretically, it would be part of a transshipment of many such jars. And so that's one thing. Like either this incense um, industry is on an industrial scale <clears throat> that's unprecedented. Yeah. Or we're getting something wrong here. Yeah. Well, yeah. why couldn't the jar just be not and the quantity not reflect, you know, the amount, the total amount of this exotic ingredient, but rather that this is a this is a local, it's a local jar, so it's not being moved. It's maybe it's a local product that is infused with this exotic ingredient in and the capacity on the jar is just the capacity of the jar. It doesn't talk about the the actual quantity of the exotic material specifically. But why would the why would the quantity not be associated with the product, which is um, and I, I want to get the pronunciation right, though I won't of uh, laudanum. Right. Why would they say shy or however you want to pronounce that shy laudanum five? if laudanum and five aren't to be associated with each other. Well, maybe it's, maybe it's five units per, per, you know, X number of gallons. But then if it was, if we're talking about, if we're talking <laughs> you're about mixing gallons and if <laughs> that's true. <laughs> um, if we're talking about um, wine, if we're talking about gallons of wine infused with this, shouldn't it actually say uh, laudanum wine five? Um, instead of just laudanum. Right. Well, that, yeah. I mean, I just think that there's sort of a, a slight issue with that. But the, the other issue I want to bring up is that laudanum apparently comes from Mediterranean islands as well as... As well as. As right. well as um, South Arabia. Okay. So then, and and that's interesting. And that's also important to the argument because the argument says that these... Caravans bringing these bringing uh, laudanum from the Arabian Peninsula, from the Kingdom of Sheba, to Israel for transshipment across the Mediterranean. Right? They say they keep harping on this issue of bringing it to Mediterranean ports. Right. Well, it's also being found in Mediterranean islands. Then I would suspect there's no need unless there's a real difference or distinction between the two types of laudanum. Alternatively. And this is where the article, this is kind of what I find the most interesting thing, is that there's lots of inferences being drawn, right, all across the place in a in a somewhat um, disconnected way. Mm -hmm. So why does it have to be for transshipment? Why can't the Kingdom of Israel be using all of this product? And that's one of the issues that I found interesting and a little problematic about the article which is it brings in 50 million different kinds of things from all over time and space yes. without creating a real systematic understanding of what precisely is going on in the 10th century. So yes. we have inscriptions from the Talmudic period and rabbinic period. We have references to laudanum in a variety of Semitic languages, Akkadian, Arabic, Hebrew. And we have Herodotus, we have Josephus, you know, there's a lot of stuff in here, and um, it it's very interesting, and I I like I think it's really interesting to sort of bring the kingdom of Sheba into a greater degree of historicity and its possible biblical connections. But I also find it's a style of scholarship that is very reminiscent of you know the 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 the, um, the golden age of biblical archaeology, very Albrightian. Um, you know, with right. biblical connection and some kind of a Semitic word, a South Semitic word. And from that, you build huge, huge, you know, relationships. Yeah, I, I think that's that's a fair analysis. It is it is Albrightian very much in that in that sense. And, um, you know, so I'll respond to that as a non-epigrapher. I mean, <laughs> right. None of us are epigraphers. None, none of us are, are epigraphers. Are, um, are and I have. 
yeah. So, so I don't know what was, you know, what the problem was with this inscription before this interpretation, like why nobody, but, but I also understand that, that, like you just said, laudanum is found in other Semitic languages. This root is found in other Semitic languages. So I have no problem. And I'm actually really interested in the detail of here's this jar, which has this ingredient mentioned on it. And yeah, the volume is, is an issue, but I love this kind of detail. You know, you're finding something in Jerusalem and you know exactly what it was in the item, whether it is the Canaanite word or the, the Sabean word, it's the same root, right? So I like that it is a, an ingredient given. Um, but the rest of it, the peril is going all over, even into medieval times to, from, from the Talmud and, and rabbinic commentaries talking about what this might be, et cetera. That um, kind of bothered me. Um, but here's the other thing that bothered me. I'll just jump in with a totally different problem. Um, I have a problem with the image of this Sabaean guy, this Arabian guy saying to the Canaanite scribe, okay, clay's still wet. <laughs> start inscribing, I'm going to dictate to you in my own language, which is not your language, even though here I am in Jerusalem, here we are in Jerusalem, um, I'm going to dictate it to you in this other language. That just doesn't make sense to me. I can't quite process that that picture. That's the most that's the most sensible part of the whole <laughs> of the whole thing. That there was this Sabean guy and he's like a traitor or something. And he's there at a you know, in Jerusalem, which is this, you know, pokey little pretentious capital in the 10th century. And he, and this guy is involved in, well, he's, he's an exporter importer. He's kind of <laughs> emphasizing the imports at the moment. And well, that's actually um, an interesting observation is what's the, you know, what's the export or are they just buying the stuff and they could be just buying stuff. they could be just they could be just buying i don't you know there's no way to know whether it's trans shipped or, or anything so there is some well i guess we have silver and and he just commissions a he commissions a pot and 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 the guy makes the pot and then the 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 sabian guy just reaches down and he writes uh writes it in his own language on the on the you know the neck of the pot or or whatever. Well, that's better than my dictating. Um, but um, but actually, that's part of the issue for me is that the the uh, the recent article really strongly suggests that it's a Sabian who is, you know, a trained or you know, illiterate Sabian writing on the pot. But uh, right, you see, so and that's what that's the interesting part because when you when you look at um. Ancient South Arabia, and this and this to me is the most important part of the whole thing. It doesn't have to do with the material, doesn't have to do with the pot, doesn't have to do with one guy who might be there, you know, importing and exporting. It's the fact that in the Iron Age, starting really at the beginning of the first millennium BCE, all these areas were part of a giant integrated system. Ah. And, and in the first millennium BCE, from well, starting at the beginning of the period and running into the middle of the, the next millennium, there are something like 15,000 South Arabian inscriptions in various different uh, languages Sabean and uh, Hadramatic and Katabanic and all these kinds of things using their own variation on the alphabet and use their literary, their, their political, their legal, their, all these kinds of things. The, but the point being is that you have these, you have this area, which is writing constantly in vast and in vast quantities, which is in contact with um, the area that we think is somehow more, more important because it's Jerusalem and they have a temple and there's this guy named Solomon and um and, and it's all part of a of a gigantic integrated iron age world well let's call it a world system well okay so it's that's... a system it's a system that encompasses <laughs> part of the world <laughs> so the words work but the idea behind the words might be well let's you know let's you know not the tr traditional view right well so this is sort of on the heels of our um, tin in Uzbekistan kind right. of 
um, which thing. has caused a kerfuffle throughout the among the, the listen, in the listener. Well, there's nothing more. Oh, has it? There's because there's nothing more. You know. Well, whatever. I'm, the the point here is is that you can look at this two ways. You can look at this as something top down and a big integrated system, <clears throat> which I think is probably a slight exaggeration of what's going on. Or you can look at it as bottom up, as opportunism by a variety of con kinds of entrepreneurs, and the kind of thing that's probably get, that has undoubtedly been going on throughout the Near East and the Eastern Mediterranean since the Calcolithic, since the Neolithic period. For the, since the Neolithic. Mm -hmm. Right. Since the Epipaleolithic. Since, <laughs> since, <laughs> since time, <laughs> since time began. Right. <laughs> right. So, and that's really a personal, that's where, you know, that's where the me in archaeology comes from, because that's, that's kind of a personal, you know, disposition, whether you want to see things as, as, systemic as a big system and complex and well-organized and all working together, or whether you want to see things as entrepreneurial with a small E and, you know, just, there's a lot of stuff going on at a low level because it doesn't take much to move precious items, precious commodities, which are probably in small amounts, you know, once you have, camel caravans able to you know move around yeah. and and i think that the way the article presents the system you can really you know see it really either way and it's almost like a a personal conviction as to how you'd rather see it well i i think one thing that is important to say is let's say in two weeks or three weeks all the other epigraphers say nah it's really canaanite I don't think that negates any of this whole world system stuff. No, not at all. Saying right, so whether or not this particular inscription is proof of contact and down the line trade and all this, um, almost doesn't matter because right. And laws. in slightly later periods in the Southern Levant, there are very unequivocal South Arabian objects and mm -hmm. and inscriptions. Um, right. Uh, there, there's not there's not many of them there's only a right. couple yeah but they're little incense burners and things like that and uh, and i also read somewhere that um in south arabia there's there's a, a bronze inscription from around 600 bc that talks about the cities of yehud yeah. so later on you know they knew they knew right. they, they, they knew <laughs> And and then don't forget the Assyrians, you know, ninth century, eighth century for sure. You've got the spice trade going strong, and you know, we have that in textual records. And the spice trade between Arabia and Assyria obviously had to go through um Israel or Judah at that point. So right. And by the time you get to the end of the Assyrians, um, you have actual Assyrian kings who were living out in Arabia. Right. Well, one. Well, Babylon, Babylon, right. right. One guy. Right. I was going to bring a that little, up. Yeah. A little I mean, bit. That's much later, though. That's sixth century. No, no. But the, the point is that during that period, it's all part of the same. Right. You know, and there, there are places that, uh, you know, in in South Arabia, there are there's literally like over ten thousand inscriptions now, uh, and they're on all sorts of materials. So they they're doing they're doing their own thing yeah that's the thing in they're a very their... big and sophisticated way and they're building walls and they're you know organizing floodwaters and doing irrigation and all this kind of stuff but they're not part of the they're not part of the the, the narrative that conventional um Lev levantocentric archaeology um that's a good word yeah, yeah well they are and they aren't there are they are part of the narrative of the biblical levant the biblical archaeology history they're a central part of it because it's this i mean see this Queen is of the sheba. Point. Yeah. right the end point is solomon and sheba hook up and have illegitimate kids who spawn a you know judeo 
Sabian <laughs> dynasty that ends up in Ethiopia, okay, where we have the Lion of Judah. So, okay. you know, it, it's wheels within wheels, okay. and it's definitely part of that narrative. And then it was excluded from the more sort of, you know, ecumenical, scientific-based, you know, uh, the new archaeology of the Southern Levant. And now we've lived so long, we're so <laughs> old and decrepit that there's a new biblical archaeology in which you have the infusement of, there's that word, of science in order to provide little but unassailable data points linking Hebrew Bible and archaeology. And that new biblical archaeology, you know, is not any less problematic because the agenda is always very clear. Prove the Bible. Give um, the Bible added, you know, an added rigor of um, of science. I, I have to dispute that slightly. <laughs> yeah, I, a I friendly, is this a friendly amendment or, a, a amendment. or yeah, an yeah. adversarial amendment? Because we always follow Robert's rules in this uh, podcast. Always. <laughs> um, so, so I mean, I I see what you're saying, of course, and there is there is that, and I don't disagree. But um, the other side of this is let's not throw out the baby with a bath water right so right. the bible is... Solomonic. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> my <laughs> baby don't throw out that i'll <laughs> i will split the bath water for you <laughs> somebody get a 30 gallon container yeah. that's pretty large you can split it um but no but the the bible is a source it's a slightly later antique source and no we don't have the original manuscript of it but you know source theory can put parts of this down to at least the ninth, eighth centuries, right? So we can't discount the Bible as a historical source. And I think it's part of the Bible. Parts of the Bible. That's parts the, of the Bible. And if there is a narrative, which there is, that links um, the, first of all, the potential existence of the United Monarchy, which I think we have to unpack also, and especially the fact that the press immediately seizes on this. Ooh, solid. Well, okay, but that's something we talk about like literally every other week about. Well, we're going to talk about it today too. <laughs> but but before we do that, I just want to point out that finish. I'll finish my thought that um, uh, that you know there there is this potentially um, not completely made up idea of contact. <laughs> <laughs> I'm being careful well. between between um, an entity called Israel that existed in the 10th century and a kingdom in the southern reaches, uh, south southwestern Arabia. Um, in in this story of the Queen of Sheba coming up to visit Solomon and say, hey, wow, you're really a wise man, just like I've heard and all this. So I don't, you know, it's it's not necessarily about proving the Bible. It's about it's about not discounting the potential historicity of parts of the Bible. Right. And I, I mean, I don't think any of us have ever done that. I mean, I think we're all very, you know, I'm certainly very traditional. There is yeah. a 10th century kingdom. There was a David and that 10th century kingdom was small and relatively inconsequential and unimportant, right. but it absolutely existed. Right. The thing here is it's, it's shading. And I always get very suspicious when the argument or the agenda is starts with a biblical connection that we could, you know, I think we're all amenable to the fact that, you know, there are connections between now as far east as Uzbekistan mm -hmm. and now, you know, the modern area of Yemen to the Southern Levant. Yeah. And then ultimately further west to the Aegean world. And I don't think that's ever been troubling or problematic or anything else, but to, you know, to completely, well, I don't know. I mean, I think the good thing in all of this is sort of Alex, what, what you sort of said, and Rachel also what you sort of said, which is it's going to retrain our attention on looking at all the archeological data, which has not really been well or comprehensively collected and systematically analyzed to revivify a kingdom like Sheba. Mm -hmm. And so in that regard, it's all very good and very healthy. That's right. Well, I, I think to me, it, 
a it's a matter of of uh kind of intellectual procedure and right. that you know leading with the leading with the biblical questions is never terribly interesting to me um because it's it's a little bit on the old fashioned side and it and it leads it often it always <laughs> leads to sort of pre preconceived conclusions exactly and that's um, the that's the that's a really important observation to make but but the the bigger question to me is you you have um you have other iron age worlds that aren't that far away and yeah we have we've had hints for a long time everybody's known that there's uh, some kind of spice trade and yeah everybody's known that there's isolated objects and isolated inscriptions but how do and we everybody... yeah how do we integrate these these iron age worlds of south arabia and also of northwest arabia where there's a whole thriving kind of oasis culture yeah. thing in the late bronze age and throughout the iron age um with the iron age that that we we three rather parochially think of as the iron age mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. well okay Oof, boy there's a lot to unpack there but um this is something that we've talked about before and i certainly have asserted and i will assert again that we're that fleshing out or filling out the framework of these small Iron Age societies and polities ultimately does nothing to change our, the three of us, understanding of these polities and what you published in that Jesho article um, about secondary state formation in the Southern Levant. It does nothing to change the scope or scale or economic vitality or sociocultural influence of these places. They're still they're still all small scale, relatively small players. So, so they're just more dots on the map? It, well, it's not just more dots, but now we know what it means to be small scale. <laughs> what what it means small, to be a small dot. Exactly. What it means to be a small dot. We used to think it, what it meant to be a small dot is X, Y, and Z. And now we know what it means to be a small dot also includes that you have dried fish from the both Mediterranean and the Red Sea, that you have access to vanilla, that you have access, and this is, I'm going to get to this in a second. And if you just, if you give me a little latitude, you're, you're on. <laughs> um, so that we just know there's more stuff that involves, that's involved in these small scale societies, but they're still small scale, right? When Assyria sure. or Egypt decides to flex, they cower. Sure, sure. Given the first opportunity for them to bend the knee, Yehu, you know, completely, you know, bends himself, folds himself over in front of Shalmaneser III, that nothing has changed about the scope, influence, or scale. It just fleshes out, as you said, the small dots. And now before I forget, because I'm, I am old and I do forget things, <laughs> one of the real lacuna in this very interesting article that brings in lots of sources from all over time and space, which is both a good thing and a bad thing, is the um, is forgetting to include cannabis found at a rod, which we know comes from someplace to the south and east, whether it's the Arabian Peninsula or possibly originally South Asia doesn't matter. But that, to me, is the closest analog mm. to what's going on with Ladinum as opposed to other kinds of things, because that's a small prestige object that's being used by elites in very restricted contexts. And because we always do it, whether we want to or not, you know, the modern analogs to moving, you know, controlled substances across borders. Of course, now cannabis has moved in huge quantities, but, you know, drugs are traditionally moved in limited quantities up until the very recent, you know, times. And um, I think that that's a really close analogous thing that, you know, works to, to further flesh out this system. Yeah. 
That's a really interesting point. And let's let's just remind our listener that an early podcast that we did was about the it was very early. What? <laughs> it was very early. It was very early. It was like one of the very first half dozen or so. Um, but I think that's a really interesting point and and a very good analogy. Um, I'm not quite sure what to. You brought up many interesting things here. <laughs> <laughs> My work is done. Also, you get an extra star in your copybook for today. Always leave them wanting more. All right. <laughs> Good night, everybody. <laughs> and the, the Shamanese are Jehu bending down to him, absolutely. And on that same black obelisk, it, you have Arabian tribute. You've got the, right. the camels right. right there coming right. from Arabia. So yeah. All you're um, missing is the is the is the phrase midnight at the oasis. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. And I, I the whole idea of of um of centers and peripheries. I don't want to go off too far. Ah, you see, now that's a that's an interesting. Everybody wants to be the center, but, <laughs> but, we've, but, but we've had we've had personal conversations, and we've in which we've talked about you know mobile centers, how centers are always dependent on what the hell you're talking about. Right. So for this particular period, the center could very well be South Arabia, but it's a very you know specific center with a very specific periphery. Right. Everybody is their own center and everybody else. <laughs> I like this actually. And oh, that's peripheral to them. That's very and Zen. It's yeah, very, very Freudian. And, you know, obviously Assyria, Egypt, right. They're the real centers, but um, if you're, whoa, living whoa, Jerusalem, whoa, <laughs> what is real? <laughs> what is real? If you're living in Jerusalem or if you're like us studying Jerusalem, studying the Southern Levant, that's your center. And if you're studying South Arabia, that's your center as a scholar or as an, Iron Age uh, Sabean. Well, um, <laughs> certainly if you're an Iron Age Sabean. Um, but this is what, I mean, this, from an, from an intellectual point of view, <laughs> to the extent that I, I can even think in those terms. Say, so we're going to round up some intellectuals for this. <laughs> um, you know, this, these are all different um, subspecialties in what we call Near East, uh, you know, Near Eastern yeah. archaeology as a yeah as a whole and everybody is sort of vague every everybody is aware of yeah there's a place called jerusalem because you know biblical archaeology which is the, the great grandpappy of mm. of them all and you know and continues to sort of tyrannize <laughs> everybody from its old rocking chair yeah um, Whereas, you know, in all these different areas, people are going out and like, oh, yeah, we're our own, we're our own thing. And how to integrate this into a larger, larger vision, not even pedagogically, but just sort of psychologically, <laughs> you know, pe the people who specialize in the Iron Age of, of the, of the Gulf are not the people who specialize in in south in the yemen mm -hmm. um or northwest arabia and these are like different intellectual traditions now and everybody's you know everyone's everyone's balkanized or siloized right it's the same thing that exists to this day sadly and unfortunately in phoenician studies in the southern levant right where you have the conspicuous absence of references based on, you know, geopolitical realities. And it's utter rubbish and nonsense because no good analysis can, can occur if you're excluding important data that impinges directly on the Phoenicians in Lebanon or the Phoenicians in, you know, modern Israel or anything else. So yeah, it's that, right. So what we sort of get back to that old biblical, Archaeology tradition of grand synthesis, writ w, capital W, capital L, writ large in the biggest way. And the question is, you know, how to skillfully do that. Skillfully. So that the wrong people here, that's for sure. I, I agree with everything you just said, JP, except your conclusions. Oh, well, that's <laughs> perfect. Um, I yeah no I think um, you should do a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Got to get this all on tape. This is gold. Right. <laughs> gold, <Yeah>. Jerry. <laughs> I think I think in terms of um, what you're absolutely I 100% agree about about the Phoenicians and and the implications of that. But I don't. I think the larger problem 
is and and the whole grandpappy Alex of you know biblical archaeology. Yeah, <laughs> I don't I want to drink like bourbon. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't think that that I think the Bible is actually the grandpappy, not biblical archaeology. And here's what here's what I'm seeing with this well the scholarly article, and then obviously the press release that came out of the scholarly article, which has been quoted in every single newspaper. The newspaper articles are emphasizing above all else Solomon and the and Queen of Sheba. Sheba. This is, you know, evidence right. so of this the, story. That's the and, oldest story in the book. Right. Well, no, it's actually or the not greatest the story ever told. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. uh, but yeah. So so I think it really has to do with engaging the public with archaeology, which of course is what this podcast does. Uh, <laughs> right. It's uh, outward facing scholarship. Exactly. <laughs> But it's it's like um, the you know the public has not yet OFS what <laughs> OFS oh. <laughs> outward facing scholarship that right in my CV yeah yeah um, so it's really it's it's the uh, Western culture society journalism the media that is doing this um, to our field our field isn't helping necessarily yeah no the field the field relies as we've said as I've said many times field. The field would be dead as a doorknob without this kind of, you know, slightly um, tendentious and um, skewed, uh, you know, uh, news right. news stuff. <laughs> but um, but I, you know, I I want to know what I don't I want to know what scholars want to want to do with with all this, and I, I don't I don't advocate that everybody should know about everything. Um, and in every in every field and everywhere, that's not that's not realistic. But gosh, it'd be nice to have a better have a better grip. Well, it'd be nice to have a grip. Let's to have a grip. Speaking in speaking in my case, yeah. So. yeah. Well, I think I, I no honestly, I think that there's a lot of exciting work to be done, um, and that there's a lot of you know profitable and productive avenues of inquiry. Uh, in the Iron Age too, which is a sentence I never thought I would say, but um, <laughs> but nonetheless, I think it's I I really believe that you're dropping the zingers today, exactly. <laughs> and you know, we didn't even talk about um, the context where this was found. It was found with other store jars, uh, which did not have inscriptions in um, a location that was not really described. Aha, uh -huh. exactly, Jacques. Yeah. The, right. So we don't have a really good description of, of the location. And as we all know, in the city of David, while it's located very nicely, the location of artifacts is always problematic because of all of the topographic and archaeological and all the historic conditions of Jerusalem. Right. So, right. The fact that it was found 300 meters south of, you know, the Temple Mount. What it you know in the Ophel? What isn't found three hundred meters well, out of the Temple Mount? I mean, it's right. also exactly. yeah, fossil shark teeth. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> that's right. Which we also have podcasted right. about. Right. So um, I I think that that was a little bit of a you know, and that's how that kind of what Alex just described that sort of tendentiousness creeps in. Yeah. It's like, yeah, everything is found in proximate. Everything that's being excavated is proximate to the Temple Mount. So of course right. it's proximate to the Temple Mount. You know, right. tell me something I don't know. Right. Absolutely. But, it, and yet, and yet, you know, and yet. we can talk right. and that. And this doesn't reflect in any negative no. way on the scholarship here. Um, yeah. You know, it, which is, which is great stuff. Um, even if it's not it. necessarily the style that we would have done it, <laughs> were oh. we even remotely, <laughs> were we doing anything? Yeah. But, you know, were we we're not epigraphers, as we might have said earlier in this podcast, we're archaeologists, and I would have loved to have more archaeological context. I know it's in the room of a building. I don't know what kind of a building it was. These are storage jars. So is this a storage room? Are there other resins? It, nobody's done the chemical analysis yet, as far as I know. Right. We don't know what was in the bottom of either this storage. I'm jar sure that they're stuff. doing all sorts of great stuff. I'm sure they are, but we don't um, have that information. Right. So, but the inference. You know the inf information wants to be free, and so it will it will out at, at at some point. But you know it's it's nice that this is a this is a very interesting find. It's very provocative. It's yeah. you know it, does it change our perspective on everything? Maybe not. 
does it usefully add to our perspective? Absolutely. Which is more than a lot of people can say. I Any think that's a very good, I think that's a very nice conclusion and yeah. and coda to this whole to this whole very interesting find. I agree. Anyone have any other concluding thoughts or should we let Alex's stand? I think we need a graphic novel of Solomon and Sheba. <laughs> <laughs> I think that if there's any young budding, you know, artists and writers out there who are also involved in the field, this is your opportunity. That's right. For the next great graphic novel. Digital storytelling of some kind or comic, just a plain old comic book. Yeah. Yeah. All right. And be in touch with us if if you create such a thing, because right. we would we, we would like to be to represented it. as the uh as the Greek chorus or the peanut gallery. Right, the three wise characters. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. Good. Um well, this episode has me yearning for a splash of mandum which opens with bergamot and a tiny peck of grapefruit, followed by sage, sandalwood, and a slight puff of oak moss on a powdery base. So, of course, we'd like to thank Erez Dessel, Community Engagement Coordinator for the Chicago Philharmonic, for our theme music. We'd also like to thank our sponsor, the Dumont Television Network, now a division of Yoyodyne Propulsion Systems. Be sure to catch Ethel Barrymore Theater, Fridays at 8.30. And so, to get in touch... Leave us a comment. Hit the little heart shape button at the bottom of this page to show, or whatever page, really, any page, to show us that you care. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at This Ancient and on Facebook. All of those social media things that the kids are talking about. Contact us via electronic mail at This Week in the Ancient Near East. It's all one word. At gmail.com. Or send us a postcard at P.O. Box 1177. Boston, Mass., 02134.